1: Tasha Robinson is off somewhere letting cool, crisp lettuce wilt next to hot foodstuffs, <laughs> but she'll be back again for our next recording. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context, so every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're picking out on two whimsical fantasy films about what Homer Simpson called quote, the wonderful, magical animal responsible for bacon, ham, and pork chops, Genevieve should I fire up the grill? Eh,
2: not so fast, Scott. You're going to have to break out the tofu dogs this week because the pigs we'll be talking about are special. They're terrific, radiant, and humble. They are Babe, the sheepdog pig, and Okja, the super pig. With Bong Joon-ho's dark yet sweet satirical fantasy Okja premiering on Netflix to much attention and acclaim, we wanted to look back on the 1995 family hit Babe, another effects marvel about a pig of destiny doing everything it can to avoid the knife. The look and tone of Okja and Bae may be radically different, as are their appropriateness as family viewing. But both are fundamentally good-hearted fantasies about the touching relationships between a pig and its keeper, and how each pair surprises the public with their unlikely talent. Scott, perhaps these animals without a purpose do have a purpose.
1: Probably the most noble purpose of all, when you think about it, to give us something to talk about on our podcast. (laughs) On today's episode, we'll look back on the storybook pleasures of Chris Noonan and George Miller's Babe, about an adorable runt that finds a place for itself on Hoggett's Farm. Then later in the week, we'll bring in Bong Joon-ho's Okja, about a genetically engineered super pig that's claimed by an international corporation, a radical animal rights group, and the 10-year-old Korean girl who raised it. Both films give us plenty to chew on, like so much super pig jerky. And we'll get started after the break.
0: This is a tale about an unprejudiced heart and how it changed our valley forever. There was a time not so long ago when pigs were afforded no respect except by other pigs. They lived their whole lives in a cruel and sunless world. In those days, pigs believed that the sooner they grew large and fat, the sooner they'd be taken into pig paradise. A place so wonderful that no pig had ever thought to come back. Goodbye, Mom. So when the day came for their parents to go to that other world of endless pleasures, it was not a time for young pigs to be sad. Just another step towards the day when they too would make the journey. Babe
1: opens in purgatory. In a dark, windowless barn, pigs are crammed together in pens where they wait for deliverance. The narrator says, There was a time not so long ago when pigs were afforded no respect except by other pigs. They lived their whole lives in a cruel and sunless world. In those days, pigs believed that the sooner they grew large and fat, the sooner they'd be taken to Pig Paradise, a place so wonderful that no pig had ever thought to come back. In one of those pens, we watch our runty hero, Babe, have the bittersweet experience of watching his mother get escorted to Pig Paradise, replaced by a metal feeding machine. We, of course, know that it shouldn't be a bittersweet experience at all, that Pig Paradise is the place where pigs become pork, and that Babe's ultimate destiny is to go from farm to table. It's a grim opening to one of the brightest and most uplifting family films of its era. While it may be strange to think of Babe as a death-haunted film, there's a reason George Miller and Chris Noonan choose to open the film as they do. For Babe to be as affecting as it is, we have to know how the farm works and what purpose the animals serve, even if, in the case of pigs and ducks, that purpose is to feed their bosses eventually. Because knowing that makes Babe's innocence more affecting and makes the relationship between Babe and the farmer Arthur Hoggett, played by James Cromwell, all the more special. Farmer Hoggett is an experienced hand. At the carnival, he guesses Babe's weight down to the ounce just by picking him up. He is prepared, on two separate occasions, to fulfill his duty and put the pig down. We have to know the possibility of death in order to appreciate the qualities that truly define the film, because Babe is ultimately about the power of kindness to change the world. Babe has the innocence of a child, at least until Hoggett's sinister cat makes him aware of his true purpose. And while he's quote-unquote some pig, as Charlotte might put in her web... He teaches the other animals the value of kindness in achieving a good result. The sheepdogs learn that sheep respond more to respectful direction than fear and insults. Farmer Hoggett puts away his knives and a shotgun, and we in the audience are utterly disarmed by his gentleness and modesty. Babe has always been a wonderful example for children, but watching this film today, at a time when such values have been corroded, felt especially touching and appropriate. In 2017, as in 1995, Babe will show us the way.
0: stupid mom not as stupid as sheep mind you but pigs are definitely stupid excuse me no we're not good heavens who are you i'm a large white yes that's your breed dear what's your name i don't know well what did your mother call you to tell you apart from your brothers and sisters our mom called us all the same and what was that dear she she called us all pigs. perhaps we shouldn't talk too much about a family <laughs> I want my mom. (laughs) There, there. You've got to be a brave boy now. I left my mother when I was your age, and my pups will have to leave me soon. But I'll keep an eye on you if you like.
1: So it's been a long time since this movie came out. It was a little, aged me a bit seeing this thing again, uh, uh, now 22 years later. But what is your history with Babe, and what did you think about it now?
3: It's strange seeing a kid's film that you saw as a grown-up, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you To realize that there's a whole generation that came up with this as, as a kid's film. And Anyway, now I loved it then, I love it now. I think this is a, a terrific movie, and, and I, I'm sure Genevieve feels fiercely otherwise.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, it's a delightful movie for all the reasons you laid out in your keynote. I did see this as a child, and I, I had warm memories of it from then. And I, I've seen it at least once other than this since then. So this would be probably my third or fourth time watching it. And every time I'm struck by the fact that, like, this is a movie I like a lot that never quite tips over into me loving it, Hmm. and I have a hard time putting my finger on exactly why. I think it's maybe the storybook structure, which is very purposeful and I think executed well, does kind of serve to sand off some of the edges that I, I think the movie suggests it has at in the beginning, as you talk about mm-hmm. in that keynote, it eventually does come down to a very nice, simple, but broad and really nuanced message of just be nice to people. <laughs> and I, I mean, as you say, that's a powerful message in its way in this time, but it's also not a very specific message. Hmm. And I think because this is such a specific story about, you know, a pig who becomes a sheep dog or a sheep pig to have such a kind of ill-defined central message, I think kind of keeps me from fully connecting to it to the extent I would like to.
3: I think it's be nice to people, but it's also about there's a whole thing running through it about how everyone knows what pigs are. Everyone knows what, what dogs do. Everyone knows what sheep do. And this is about how everyone has potential beyond what what their expectations are, and I think that i 'm not going to say it's a subtler message, but I think it's woven in there a little deeper into the fabric than just be nice to people and, yeah. and I found that really affecting watching this, this uh, again
2: yeah, you're right. I guess there is like a a side message of you know don't let your determined fate get you down <laughs> yeah,
3: don't, don't <laughs> you be know? and don't be prejudiced you know, don't. yeah,
2: yeah, that too, but I think it's just maybe it's because I was watching it this time in the context of pairing it with Okja and mm-hmm. just kind of thinking about how the two films engage with our relationship with animals Mm. i think that babe sets up a lot of really interesting distinctions between like what different types of animals are for and then due to its plot isn't like able to fully engage with that Mm. Um, but also just due to it being a family film and a kids film and like me not necessarily Wanting to engage with those things. Like, I don't want it to be a different film than the one it is. I'm just explaining, like, why I feel as an adult, I can't, like, fully love this movie rather than just really like it
1: genevieve i I, have i got the movie for you it's called (laughs) babe pig in the city (laughs) i know and i tried (laughs) so
2: hard to watch it before this scott okay no i'm I'm telling
1: you all of the things that you're kind of like complaining about that babe doesn't do in terms of you know going into some darker more nuanced places while still maintaining you know a sense of wonder that babe has it's all in the sequel and uh i had for the longest time because I'm, a, I'm an edgy guy. People call me edgy and, uh, and kind of hip. Wouldn't you all agree? Oh, yeah. oh certainly, You're, certainly. Right.
2: Your baby blue polo shirt is just screaming out, edgy guy. <laughs> That's Wait. a
1: Banana Republic. Excuse me. Um, so, but but I've always, In your film taste. I've always felt like I've been such a huge defender of Babe, Pig, in the City, and I wrote about it at length for a new cult canon back in, at AV Club, and I think it's just such an inspired, crazy, you know, very much a George Miller film in, in a way that, that Babe is not. I mean, it's it's really dark in a way, in, in alienated audiences for that reason, but it's a remarkable movie, and I thought I had gone in, uh, it had this long-running just assumption or belief that it was the best of the the, the Babe movies, of course, you know, mm-hmm. of course Babe is just a simple little thing, and Babe, Pig in the City, that's the real but, masterpiece. But the one
2: people don't like has to be the good one, right? and the <laughs> one people be... like has it's to be also, the bad one. Exactly.
1: Well, it's the it's <laughs> it's the weird one though. It's a yeah. weird movie, but it's also you know beautiful. Like mm-hmm. you know, I mean, people, when people talk about how dark it is, they also miss represent the light, which is there. The the the, the cityscape that Miller creates is so singular and gorgeous and plus it's got a lot of road warrior-esque chase sequences anyway that's babe too but babe uh but revisiting babe i really was moved by it and found myself just adoring the simplicity of it the purity of its message the emotional connection between uh farmer Hoggett and this pig which is which is it's sweet but also but really whimsical too i mean i think of that Scene where he decides to just dance. dance a jig. Yeah. It's just it's such a great scene, and James Cromwell has such presence in that role. And and you know when the pig has its big big moment and really turns hostile people around. You know in the big competition, it just it it gets me. You know, and I think the ending is so perfect that that'll do. Pig, it's just you can't do better than that. It's just you know, you talk about it. I mean, I think these storybook qualities that make me get pat and simple, but to me that's. What makes it great is this is kind of just there's something about like a pure children's film done almost that that looks almost like a pop-up book. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh no,
2: I I absolutely love the visual style of so and and like I don't want to overstate the things. Like I do like Babe a lot. mm -hmm. I I feel like I was being set up to be the one to like really love Babe, so I'm just like pushing back against (laughs) that a lot, a a little bit. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I I actually really like how the film commits to that storybook because i mean it is it is adapting a a storybook you know and it it, it takes that form both in its narration and in the title cards and just in its general tone and i think in its setting which is very i mean i think we'll probably talk about this more in the second half but just it's very kind of general storybook setting that i think is probably australia given the film's country of origin
3: sort of i mean it's the accents are everywhere.
2: Yeah. I mean, you can't tell from the accents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at any rate, it's just like kind of agrarian society that probably doesn't exist in that form much uh, in, in 1995, much less mm-hmm. now. So it, it does have that quality of being sort of removed from time that I think adds to that storybook quality. It's well executed. Yeah. Very well executed.
1: One, th- one of the things, too, about the film that I admired looking at it today is how well the animatronic effects held up. Do you feel feel likewise? Do you like the effects?
2: The animatronics were are mostly the sheep. Am I it's
3: right. it's a mix, and there's, yeah. there's some animatronic pigs in there too. Yeah, the sheep are almost entirely animatronic, I, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's sort of a mixture of live action with CGI and so. Right,
2: on. the animatronic sheep. I mean, they're they're from the Jim Henson Company. They they look great, but I was actually more struck on this viewing the kind of early computer effects that are used to mm-hmm. make the animals talk, which is a, a merging of of actual animal actors mm-hmm. being filmed and then sort of using computer effects to make their mouths move. And I mean, that's an effect that we've seen used to varying effects for a long, long time. But I think the way it's executed here holds up really well. But it also, I think, I took note of it because it's the kind of thing that would probably be done entirely CGI at this point. Like, look at something like the Charlotte's Web from 2006, where the animals were almost entirely computer generated, like their entire forms. It Mm -hmm. wasn't just to make them speak. And like, you know, effects have evolved to the point where like that looks pretty good but there's something especially with animals i think well and people too but with animals there's like the uncanny valley of cuteness and and i think like it's much harder to just like react to a uh, animal's inherent cuteness when it's composed entirely of pixels yeah no <laughs> so i think like having the actual live animal actors in in the mix and then using computer graphics to goose that footage is a much better approach than than it being entirely CGI, which in 1995 would have been a terrible approach. It would have looked awful. <laughs>
1: yeah, like those. Uh, <laughs> who wants those puppies to be CGI? Right. Those things are beautiful. One of the things that stood out for me in terms of that, the computer augmentation, I guess, of, of the real animals, is just not overdoing it, making the mouth, mouth movements small and not conspicuously manipulated mm-hmm. digitally which is something that can be quite frightening and terrible yeah. if, if, if they you... also
2: did some subtle manipulation of the eyes on the on the dogs like okay the, the eyebrows to get there
1: yeah i mean I, I think if you, i think just understanding like how far to push it is a kind of a critical element of, of the effects working here as well as they do but uh but it is fascinating it's fun to me to to encounter films of the past or even like because this is still pretty early in the cgi era
3: it was two years after jurassic park right this is like
1: this year this is also the same year toy story came out so right right um which is the first you know feature length computer animated movie so so this was all fairly cutting edge and it's it's kind of gratifying to see that even with the advancements that we have now that the effects then were solid and hold up and the film plays in a in a way that you know may, maybe um, a modern audience, uh, say composed of my children, would be kind of looking at it askance.
3: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I showed it to my kid and she she was into it. Watching it, I was just I was aware that some of it was CGI, some of it was puppetry. I mean, it's, it's not really hard to see the strings if you're looking for them. I also feel like that approach is kind of fits into its just off reality feel mm-hmm. of the film, and that's that works for me. I mean, as 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 a defender of antiquated <sighs> special effects, uh, especially, I'm um, I'm not going to be bothered by that. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, that's always your go-to argument against the term dated is that it's part of like the world of the film that that you have to fall into. And I think, as you say, this film is... Position to do that much better than a lot of other films that may have so-called dated effects.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it was something we talked about last show with The Thing, those effects being conceived in a certain way and are are part of the world of that film, and we can experience it now and feel great about it because that is part of the movie. (laughs) I think there are other effects examples that that really don't hold up well. I don't want to use the word dated, but I think about that era and I remember even at the time seeing Twister, which was so cutting edge, and feeling like these effects are are weightless and kind of cartoonish
3: like, cow floating through the air, cr- yeah.
1: cartoonish cow, and in no no sense of these the you know the shards of fence that were kind of zipping towards us. I thought like this is not this doesn't feel real. This feels like a computer well because
2: it's creating something out of whole cloth, and this is not. Doing that, it's just it's adding an embellishment yeah, to the cloth that is, is already there. Yeah,
1: which it is nice, and I think you do need that. You know, like I said, this is like like one of those pop up books, having that dimensionality, that the tactile quality. You know, is a big part of uh, the film's charm. You know, which brings me to the next related question, which is, you know, how would you describe that? Just the production design generally, and the storybook qualities of the film, and how they work. I guess we've kind of gotten into that a little bit, but, uh,
2: one thing we haven't touched on that I think is a a really big part of that is the Greek chorus of of mice, you -hmm. know, um, which is such a cute little like note to, to add to it. And I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be there, you know, it's, it's just, it's a little touch of whimsy.
3: You want some trivia? Yes. It was a late edition,
2: actually. Oh. It was it was
3: added when they realized that kids couldn't read the title cards. Oh, so they put the mice in there to,
2: to read
1: them. Yeah, yeah. Though you almost don't need the title cards. Either, true, right? true.
2: <laughs> but the title cards contribute to the sense of that it is a storybook mm-hmm, and they are sure. chapters, you know. Yeah. And also I think maybe for younger viewers, kind of provide sort of a, a guidebook almost to, to watching the movie and then like kind of tracking the emotional arc of yeah, the film. That's true. Um, I don't know, you guys would Probably be able to speak to that better than than I could.
3: But... I had to explain what the word tragic meant, and then uh, I, I, I felt like I felt like in a way I was kind of explaining what foreshadowing meant when I when I did that. Uh, what was the tragedy foreshadowing? Like? It's it's when Ma Ma is killed. Oh man, that was tough. Tough scene. I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that scene. Those were some oh, bad dogs. Yeah. Yeah. They wow, they were bad dogs. And
1: poor baby I thought, thought that he was oh, really no. responsible. <laughs> he a little bit of blood on the snout.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: okay, so really, Hoggett you who know animals so well who can guess a pig's <laughs> weight down to the ounce think yeah. that a piglet who it is actually mentioned at some point in this film like barely has teeth to begin with somehow killed a sheep like oh uh, what do you i don't know point? maybe it's trotters got at it i i, I don't know i'm you didn't uh, need to leap to that conclusion is all i'm saying yeah that that is true that is but true. i guess without it there would be no suspense in that part no, portion th- of the film, you, so. you, need a,
1: you need a little bit there but i mean he just maybe he felt it wasn't yeah, I, I, I can't really explain. <laughs> Farmer gets actions there. Um, he's a
2: quiet man. He doesn't. He doesn't let us in on what he, he's thinking. He keeps
3: his reasoning to himself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but you know, again, to go back to this idea of a be a storybook. I mean, storybooks are very short and they're simple there are very few words they're selected very carefully if they're if they're done properly and the emotions they convey are not nuanced but direct and if they're if it's done right and i think babe has all of those qualities and so to really hone in on babe's kindness in the way that changes that entire world To me that's enough for the film to be doing it doesn't have to be more ambitious than that because that is really not the purpose of the film or the design of the film
2: yeah and i mean to to give the film its due after lightly maligning it at the i know i'm making making it i'm making it sound like you hated babe (laughs) i know but i I mean i i will concede that like the film does like a pretty good job at establishing in a very uh light touch kid-friendly way the brutal nature of being an animal and and kind of just being on a farm i mean Christmas is carnage yeah christmas is carnage and you know you said in your keynote it opens on the way to the slaughterhouse essentially you know Mm -hmm. like it it does engage with that in a way that makes that message of kindness resonate a little stronger than it would if it was a little friendlier throughout you know it could also probably resonate stronger if it was a little less friendly throughout. But then it would, like I said, then it would be a different movie and I don't know that we would be talking about it now. Well, it, has, it has
1: enough moments though where the peril does sort of leap into your head. I mean, it has that beginning. I do love that line about Pig Paradise being a place so wonderful that no pig had ever thought to come back. That's so good. And, 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 and of course, the mother being replaced by the machine and, and babe with his tear-streaked eyes, which is something in Okja as well, if you recall, the same tear-streaked eyes. Um,
2: but also just the mundanity of that brutality, like it, the, the fact that it is a way of life and it is, you know, a part of an animal's essential being mm-hmm. and a part of how farms function, too. Like this, it's not, you know, despite the Christmas is carnage and the foreshadowing of a tragedy, like it's not particularly a tragic situation. It's a very common situation mm-hmm. it's just telling this very specific story in a way that makes you perceive that common situation differently
1: there are those two different points at which you know at christmas time and then after the slaughter of the sheep where farmer hoggett is prepared to kill babe um and then you get that the the cat the cat is so <laughs> harsh and and the cruelty of the cat is telling things as they actually are the
0: fact is that pigs don't have a purpose just like ducks don't have a purpose Uh, I, I don't really... oh alright for your own sake I'll be blunt why do the bosses keep ducks to eat them so why do the bosses keep a pig the fact is that animals that don't seem to have a purpose really do have a purpose the bosses have to eat it's probably the most noble purpose of all when you come to think about it they eat pigs? Pork, they call it. Or bacon. They only call them pigs when they're alive. But uh, I'm a sheep pig. Oh, the boss's husband's just playing a little. You. believe me
3: sooner or later every pig gets eaten i do like that the kindness of this film extends to the voiceover explained that not all cats are like this don't, yeah. don't, don't, <laughs> draw, don't draw conclusions about <laughs> all cats but this cat is
1: cats not. are that heavy in so many movies <laughs> yeah do, dogs are all dogs are never the heavy dogs cats well except when they get like bit by like you know if they rabbit yeah, well
2: i mean um rex voiced by hugo weaving uh mm-hmm. you know he he kind of starts out as, as, as a bit of a heavy and, and but,
1: Cujo. <laughs> Yes. Cujo also Rex and Cujo.
2: Diff-
3: different different film though <laughs> different film
1: I know but but you're right Rex Rex is a little bit he's got an edge like yeah. me but
2: <laughs> <laughs> but he gets an arc in uh, in a way that the the cat does not no <laughs> you know the cat is a, a more flat symbol of this film's version of evil
1: yeah well evil but but also if you t- think about how a child might connect to babe you know the cat is uh, represents knowledge in a way i mean uh, mm-hmm. you know the the babe is an innocent who doesn't know anything about the way the world works and he gets a little bit of a taste of that from this cat
3: it's definitely a movie where where every every bit of unhappiness comes from finding out how the world works and, mm-hmm. and babe's innocence is part of what makes him such a special character but also makes him Kind of a, a dupe. I mean, he can get, <laughs> get roped into this scheme by the duck, and and uh, he can be uh, singing a Christmas carol while, while everyone around is talking about Christmas as carnage, cause he, just because he likes the song. You la, know,
0: la, la.
3: Uh, it's, a, it's one of my favorite shots in the movie <laughs> yeah. too. <laughs> uh, yeah, for a simple movie, there's some there's some complexity there built into it.
1: There's something there too about you know the Hoggets they hold strong to a more traditional way of life, but at the same time they're kind of they they're rebels as well. At least at least Farmer Hoggett is in that, and that he is defying. You know the rules. There's nothing in the rules that says that says a pig can't be a sheepdog. He's kind of living life and adjusting his life on his own terms and, and by his own sense. Um, and uh, that's, of course, what allow, allows Babe to fulfill a purpose that a, that a pig wouldn't otherwise fill. Because otherwise, you kind of think about the film as being almost conservative in the in the sense that um the, the hoggets never want to change they they don't the fax machine is is a, is, a this kind of
3: peculiar i think, device I think the, the fax and, machine is the most dated element in this film <laughs>
2: yeah. but i mean it's what allows uh, hoggett to enter
3: in mm-hmm. the, in the yes. sheep, sheep dog
2: competition you know i mean without the fax machine the movie doesn't doesn't go, yeah. It's a, you know? it's a
3: couple, you know, a couple different ways, important ways. He kind of tiptoes out of his his mm-hmm. way of life that he's committed to. Yeah, the fact he
1: uses the fax machine, which kind of brings me that. Like, what is the film's relationship to modernity? I mean, that fax machine is a pretty important plot device, but also is revealing of, of character too, in terms of this generational difference between the Hoggets and uh, their kid.
3: Well, another really good example of that is heartbreaking and, and funny, but Father Hoggett laboring over this. Dollhouse, and then mm. his granddaughter oh. saying, I just wanted the one on, on television. And then that's that points to what a great actor Cromwell is mm-hmm. and how great he is it's in the movie. The look on his face is yep. like amused and sad at the same time you could just read all these emotions and he, without any dialogue at all it's just james, no, I, james I, cromwell yeah, james yeah. Cromwell.
2: I, I love that shot i'm really glad you you pointed it out in particular just a little bit of background acting that speaks to such a full characterization
1: yeah i mean james cromwell really makes the movie uh so we should talk a little bit more about him how uh, of a dancer How oh, that dancer is, <laughs> that is so that's so wonderful i mean that's such a wonderful touch to, for him to him to do this Thing. And I just I like the the just the creeping change that he utter this transformation that he goes undergoes over time by just observing what's happening on his farm with just curiosity that turns into action. You know when he sees babe separates the brown chickens from the white <laughs> chickens and you know he starts to bring him on to herd the sheep it's just it's a gradual progression and uh his engagement in that is so uh sweet
2: i think that actually kind of ties back to what we were just talking about with the film's relationship with modernity is that hoggett doesn't force anything like he observes and is curious, but like kind of lets things happen at the pace that they are supposed to happen. And I think that is also kind of his relationship with the fax machine. Like he doesn't see any reason for it until he does, yeah. you know, it's, it's a very kind of logical approach to modernizing. I think we, we also see a little bit of it with his little gate contraption. That. He, yeah. the, mm-hmm. I, the, I don't know if we're meant to believe like that's of his own devising, but I think I think, think, so. I think yeah. there, there's a line that suggests that that is the case, you know, and like, he is a person for whom advances in technology or just the way things are done comes out of a logical application for, for those advances.
1: Yeah, and he's willing to do it even if it embarrasses his wife. <laughs> uh, uh, or himself, but-, but
2: he doesn't embarrass
1: easily, uh, apparently. <laughs> no, right, that's true. I, he's It's a dignified performance, for sure. I think it's an it,
3: example also about how someone can be around forever and be in tons of stuff and you never notice them until you see a movie like this. Like, I'd, I'd seen James Cromwell in tons of stuff. I never really knew yeah. who he was until Babe. And then after Babe, it's like, oh, there's James Cromwell. And then, you know, it helped, obviously, this opened up a lot of doors for him. Well,
1: for LA real. Confidential being yes, the LA one. Confidential, mm-hmm. yeah.
3: And Star Trek First Contact, between that People versus Larry Flynn, there's a couple yeah. of, uh, of major roles. But I mean, he was around forever. I mean, he's a dad in Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, uh, he's in lots of television, uh, many, many television appearances in the eighties. But uh, but you know, this is the film that kind of made him James Cromwell, and it's you can see you can see why. But also, I think it's an example of an actor who bringing years of experience to the biggest role he's ever had, and really not overdoing it or anything. He's just he's just great in this movie.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just his stature, the the height, you know, the authenticity of of him as a as a farmer, and then of course the, his the contrast between. His stature and, and babes uh, being a tiny yep. pig. Yep. Very and, cute.
3: And, and and connecting back to the the thing a little bit, it's an example of an actor who can successfully play older than he was. He was just in his 50s when he made this movie, but he seems like a much older character, as, as does Magda Subansky as his wife, who's terrific. And I think if we were Australian, we'd regard her as a superstar, whereas now I think she's just we're mostly, as Americans, we mostly know her as, as from this movie, but she's a very quite a big celebrity in Australia. She just she l- looks like a fictional Yes. yes. Thing.
1: <laughs> you know, like, she's not a CGI creation,
2: She is a but... farmer's wife. She is like the physical embodiment of a farmer's wife. And it's such
3: you a wonderful think? compliment, too, because he is so taciturn, understated, and she is playing a character who cannot... Her face registers every emotion that goes through her brain. She can't hide anything, and, and it's a nice pairing. Yeah,
1: and And you get a sense of their routine, too, and what she... I think she feels like he's, you know, uh, that he, there are certain limitations of what he can really do on his own. I mean, when she goes away, she's leaving him uh, <laughs> a freezer full of, of meals uh, marked by date. And
2: then... they're for the cat. Well, they're for him and the cat. They're yeah. both, they're yeah.
3: both. Okay. And it seems like there's a little bit. The, the cat's food needs a little bit more care and instruction.
2: Well, and also the food. cat refers to her as the master. Yes. or, or, or
3: <laughs> the boss.
2: The boss. Yeah. That's right. The boss. The boss.
1: And I love. I, I do enjoy the cutaways to her in the hotel room watching the competition. Uh, on TV first uh, in horror and then, you know, a certain amount of amusement. <laughs> and
3: and unconscious for part of it as well. Yeah. <laughs> but like
2: yeah. kind of going back to the the contrast between Hoggett and his, his wife and those two characterizations, like it's it's calibrated really well because because Farmer Hoggett is so taciturn and silent his wife could have been like way on the other end of the spectrum and just been like this super chatty bitty you know Mm. and and really kind of annoying and she's not that like i mean she is much more talkative and social and effusive than her husband but she's not silly i mean she's maybe a little silly but she's also i mean she she runs the house she keeps him and the cat fed you know and it's a contrast that i think is equally respectful of both halves of that contrast
1: yeah and we don't really see her as a villain for you know wanting to the, the pig to be right. served at, at christmas dinner she's or, fine with duck too he's fine with duck, that's <laughs> true but it, no, it has to be one or the other yeah um that is their purpose before i want to rewrap this up i did want to talk about the end of the film which is the end of the film right it is Mm -hmm. they have a competition and that's where it leaves us but it leaves us i think in a really satisfying place what did you think of
3: it oh it's it's great ending i mean you know you you maybe expect a denouement or something but you don't get it but what what more could you get the movie's about the farmer and the pig among other things the farmer and the pig uh, uh forming this bond and and uh you know you can't really go anywhere Beyond that, and uh, and that little smile on Cromwell's face, uh, you know, well, and, and it's...
2: just one of the I think great iconic final lines in yeah. in film, you know, and I what I love about the that'll do pig line is that Babe never becomes anything other than pig to Hoggett. Like mm-hmm. he he does mm-hmm. not have a name. He was always a pig first and foremost, and I think it would have been a step too far for it to end with Hoggett like bestowing babe with a name you know and like yeah. therefore finalizing the transition from potential meal into pet mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it, because it's not exactly what's happening with babe it's just hoggett is kind of realigning his perception of what babe's purpose is but he's still pig
1: yeah i mean i think the the, the pig changes him a little bit but not completely he still has dignity essential dignity to him in and in a stature. And I think in a brace of a very simple way of living and of, of communicating that isn't altered by what is a pretty fantastical series of events.
3: And Babe doesn't really change at all either. He's just sort of an essentially sweet pig who performs a, a task set out for him fairly late in the film that the whole uh, sheep herding. I mean, it's introduced early on that he's interested in, in, in the dogs and the sheep and, and can kind of bridge those those worlds. But the whole competition is introduced pretty late and he kind of cheerfully goes about it and the end is, is still the same pig he was to begin with But I think it's Like as you said Neither of them change But there's the a bond That's formed Between them anyway
1: Yeah But we change Right Watching <laughs> watching these two are, are we feel Better We feel like We can bring Some, some goodness And decency
2: I mean I don't think I want to know The person who doesn't Feel at least A little better After watching game. <laughs> <babe. laughs> Eric Trump. I'm telling you, Eric Trump,
1: <laughs> not a fan of this movie. Yeah, we're going to get political on this movie. Ah, right. <laughs> all right. That's all I'm going to get. But I actually wanted to ask. you we were going to be nice. I chatted. You're we going to be nice. I, no, I've lost it. Like, kindness. <laughs> like, Lesson of Kindness, literally within a split second, has faded. Keith, did I talk to you about the sequel? Because I, I mentioned it, too, as something. Uh Genevieve hasn't seen but should see No, I've, like. I've
3: seen it and I need to revisit it because mm-hmm. I was kind of turned off by the time because I was I loved this movie when I saw it mm-hmm. and I loved the simplicity and the sweetness and the brightness of it um, I liked that there was this darkness hanging over it but the storybook nature of it all, and I, I was just—I was a little put off by the sequel. And, and I know that is something that you love, and others mm-hmm. really champion. I think—I think Gene Siskel went out of his way to put it, make it his number one film of the yeah. year, just just uh, to give it an extra a little, a little push. And I'm certainly a fan of George Miller. And I will know. Maybe I should check it out again someday.
1: One thing I will say that one big difference—I mean, there's so many differences—but the end of this movie, there's the bit where the, the sheepdog has to has to scurry back. To chat with the sheep, so he can come come back and help ba- Babe out before the competition. And any of that kind of action that that is amplified in a huge way because it it, it becomes definitively a george miller show mm-hmm. in babe in the city in a way that it is not in babe maybe so uh less chris Noonan or no chris
3: Noonan, i guess
1: in the sequel. yeah there was and apparently was a lot of tension yeah. yeah
3: some tension and some thing of a falling out and, and uh yeah
1: i think george miller really kind of ate up a lot of credit and Noonan felt like uh that
3: was not fair yeah and miller has some quote about how he basically handed the film to chris Noonan uh, yeah. and i think i think the i think he would have directed it if, he, if he wasn't also going to direct Contact to bring back to another You know, a show is. we covered uh, another film we covered but I guess that fell through and you know ended up doing neither
1: yeah well I mean it's on uh, Netflix if you want to visit it for the first time and you want to revisit it but for now we'll uh, leave it at babe and we'll be right back So, after that one week where we had no feedback, it looks like we never have to beg for feedback again. Either that or our listeners have strong opinions about the movies we've been covering recently. Our last show on The Thing and It Comes at Night drew some great responses, but let's first start with a voicemail from Ben in North Hollywood, who has some thoughts about the audience reaction to It Comes at Night.
4: Hello, Next Picture Show. This is Ben Howard from North Hollywood, California, calling in for some uh, thoughts on It Comes at Night. Um... I was thinking about the film, and notably you guys mentioned your audience hated it, and uh, all audiences seem to hate it. It got a D on Cinema Score, which is one of the worst scores you can get. Uh, and honestly, I think a big part of that isn't just the bleak ending. I think a lot of it comes down to the marketing, which really tried to push for it being seemingly a monster movie. And... I didn't even know, and I was very much expecting this movie. I did not know at all until I saw it that it was going to be a virus movie, so I can't even imagine people who had no idea about Trey Edward Schultz. So I'm curious if, for one, if you think that there is something to be said of completely misrepresenting a movie. Um, I feel like A24, uh, because it was in 3,000 theaters, really tried to make this a lot more conventional-looking to try and trick core audiences, quite frankly. The other thing I think and I'd be curious about is how you guys as critics sort of avoid what a trailer tells you a film is going to be, because I just think naturally as humans we want to go in kind of understanding what it is. I'm just curious as you as critics, how you try to avoid that and also if you feel like, should a movie's trailer be more representative of what it is, or should we just accept the trailer's lie, and that's the world we live in.
1: Yeah, Ben saw It Comes at Night with a audience that was similarly hostile <laughs> to, to mine and to many to the ending i get it i get it i saw the movie i get the reaction but the question that has to do with um the way it was sold to audiences and whether we have some uh, objection to that or whether the trailer perhaps failed the film uh and you know those sorts of questions which, which are interesting i think uh do you have any thoughts uh, keith or genevieve
3: Well, the trailer sold a film that was very tense and atmospheric and and scary in parts Mm -hmm. and and, and intimate, featuring a handful of characters in dark space. So what's misleading about that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You you got to get people in there somehow. I don't think the most unresolved ending of the year is probably not going to get people into theaters.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I know that filmmakers can be pretty sensitive about advertising materials and, and trailers that improperly sell their film or set up expectations that that are not fulfilled by the finished product i never did actually see the trailer for it comes at night so i can't comment on that specifically but i do think
3: i thought the shot of the giant monster like
0: <laughs> hovering outside the door was, yeah, a, was that really- is a cheat that, yeah, that was, was, a, was a cheat yeah.
3: you
1: know my question my well uh, two points one is that i think you just have to put Bodies into seats, especially now when when movies make all of their money right away, it's not about a thing where it's going to build word of mouth. A A twenty four opened this movie nationwide, and it's a weird independent horror movie. Which brings me to the second point, which is that I don't know if there's any way any trailer could have made the end of this movie more satisfying to the people who chose to see it. I think it just is going to be it's just one of those things. I mean, the Blair Witch Project was the same way. We, I remember seeing that in the theater and being utterly terrified and impressed by it and hearing all sorts of like vocal grumbles about how people felt ripped off. and I mean, that's just the way it goes. Uh, it's an independent horror film. It doesn't play by the by the rules. It ends in a non-definitive and, and to some people unsatisfying way and c'est la vie.
2: But I think, and, and I'm asking this as someone who has still not seen It Comes a Night and probably won't see it uh, because the trailer scared me. <laughs> But maybe that that's not a problem based on this conversation. But I think like kind of the question that Ben is getting at is, is it wrong or unethical to tailor a trailer with the intent of getting the most people possible in the theater, regardless of whether those people are going to enjoy the
1: film? Yeah, I, I no, I, I just that's twas ever so. I think uh, yeah. people.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, know. this is
2: far from the first film for, to to do yeah. that. you know, and I yeah. think that's just kind of inherent in movie marketing. We, I'm, I'm
3: more concerned with trailers that kind of sell out their movies. It's an old complaint, but the movies that give away too much, like I'm. Not, I'm really not sure if my reaction to the film uh, It Lies Beneath, the Robert Zemeckis movie with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, I think it might have been different if the trailer had not given away the twist, which I will not do, because I spent the whole movie knowing something huge that – I'm not supposed to know until halfway through the movie. And, I, and that to me is, I'd rather have something that's a little misleading and a little bit more of a tease and just, you know, gets me in the door than something that really tells you every inch of the steak you're about to eat, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, I, really the metaphor right. got lost
3: there somewhere, but you know what I mean? No,
1: no, that, that that I completely agree with. I mean, that's that's when trailers bother me when they cross a certain line and give you too much information there was a trailer I saw recently for one of those like sexy thriller type of things with Catherine Heigl oh, yeah. and uh, Rosario Dawson yeah, yeah. I can't even remember the name of it because there have been movies like it a thousand times but I
2: felt Our like Charles Bromesco loved that movie he? he wrote
1: There's a piece movie.
3: about it for Vox I'll at the movie I will, I will definitely watch at some point yeah <laughs> sure sure that but movie I mean the... title I can't remember
1: <laughs> but the trailer is like that's the movie it just feels like you've seen every twist you know Know where th- everything's going to lead, that bothers me a lot more than a trailer that's suggestive and then maybe misleading. Keith has the title. The, the, the name
3: of this film is Unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah.
1: What, what's the name of the What's the name of the Ray Liotta uh, sexy thriller? Is that also is that also unforgettable? <laughs> oh, I think you're right. Oh yeah,
2: because yeah, there were so many reviews about it being so forgettable when it
1: yeah. came out. And what about what about the um, Kurt Russell uh, sexy thriller? Let's well, getting
3: <laughs> well, we, well, well, sidetracked. By yeah, executive decision.
2: But, but before before we completely sidetrack, but yes, it was I, I actually wanna,
3: called uh, Unforgettable as well. The of okay. the film.
2: I want to get to the second part of Ben's question uh, of whether we as critics, how we engage with trailers, and. In line with what you guys are saying, I try to avoid trailers. Yeah, with the, the rare time. thing,
3: except for when we're with like the, your Star Wars and stuff. Yeah. Like, where I just, I'll you know, try to peek underneath the, the package before Christmas. I really try to avoid it, which is not always easy because part of my job is, is editing mm-hmm. pieces of writing Same about here. <laughs> here's the here's the third trailer from this amazing film. Like a lot of times I just edit the copy and don't even watch the trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, true confessions of a pop culture editor here, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I try to avoid them as well. So we want to... Let's continue here on the It Comes at Night tip. We have this email from another Ben, Ben Sunday, who has written us before, about the post-racial post-apocalypse. Keith, can you read that for us?
3: Sure. Ben writes, Listening to your It Comes at Night episode, I appreciated Tasha's comments on the film's mixed-race relationship and the ambiguity it creates about whether Paul is Travis's biological father. The uncertainty of the relationship certainly adds another interesting layer to the tension between them. Still, given the mixed-race cast... I wish that It Comes at Night had been more willing to engage with race as a theme. To me, it seems inevitable that a feeling of racial tension would emerge between the two paranoid families of different races living in close quarters with stress and suspicion encouraging them to interpret each other's words and actions in the worst possible way. Furthermore, given how Emmett Till's memorial was vandalized this very week, the dream sequence of Kim seducing Travis makes for a very racially charged image within American culture. Again, it seems to me that that plot point would have benefited from examining the racial dynamics of the story rather than ignoring them. That's not to say that by casting non-white actors in key roles, Trey Edward Schultz was obligated to make his film about race. Imposing such an obligation only makes it harder for minority actors to get work from creators who may feel uncomfortable addressing race as a subject. If Schultz had been willing to engage the topic, though, I think it would have made for a more compelling film. Instead, I feel like its otherwise bleak portrait of humanity on the cusp of extinction is undermined by the naive belief that the post-apocalypse will be post-racial. A lot of great points. Yeah, yeah
2: this is this is a fascinating letter, and I say that as someone who did, like I said, has not seen the movie, mm-hmm. but I did listen to you guys' podcast about it, and I think what's interesting about this that this letter kind of highlights is. As Tasha said, race was brought into the discussion because Schultz brought it up. He was the one who pointed it out, that it is a mixed-race family and you don't necessarily know that Paul is Trapp's biological father. If that hadn't been introduced... This could just be an example of colorblind casting, which Ben kind of alludes to when he says imposing such an obligation only makes it harder for, for minority actors to get work from creators. The idea that like minority actors shouldn't have to play roles that are written specifically for minorities and that there can be colorblind or even genderblind casting. But because Schultz introduced that aspect in discussing the film, now we have to read the film through that lens and I can't speak to whether it does hold up to it or not, but uh, Ben seems to think it does not.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating letter and a really good point. And I think uh, the film that Ben, you know, imagines uh, might have had, uh, you know, another layer to it that this film does not. Though I will also say that if we are going to make that John Carpenter connection between It Comes at Night and The Thing, and maybe It Comes at Night and Assaulted Pre Precinct 13, Carpenter... Like to have a lot of mixed race casts who were bonding and working together in an isolated setting where they're all sort of under attack, um, and maybe the, and and I think maybe that esprit de corps um
2: supersedes any existing racial tensions. Yeah, I will also
3: say though it's a film where everything so much is unstated and understated maybe sometimes to a fault. Um as much as I like like the movie but I don't I think just by having a mixed race cast that element is there. Uh, the fact that that Ben was thinking of Emmett until means, you know, it's it's not entirely absent that that thought is that thought is there. I mean the seduction dream sequence is really interesting because it's just never addressed again. But I think in some ways, the that uh, sort of the sexual uh, tension there is one of the candidates for the it for it comes at mm-hmm. night, and, and you know the fact that you know that it is a mixed race cast is is itself you know a prompt for thinking about that. It could it have been drawn out more? Maybe, but I, I don't know that necessarily makes it a stronger film. I don't know. It's, it's tough because there, there it is so much in this film that is left under the surface and left unsaid. I think the racial element maybe just be part of that. You know, whether or not we want to fault that for it, I think it would be easier to fault that for it if it was, like, covered up or or completely never a topic of discussion, which I guess it's not a topic of discussion, but the fact that we're talking about it now and thinking about it and it's brought to mind various things, uh, you know, it means it's not absent.
1: So, finally, as a sidebar, we griped about the creature effects in the 2011 remake of The Thing, and listener Cam has the scoop. Genevieve?
2: Cam writes, I am not going to go to bat for the Thing remake slash prequel from 2011, because all I remember from it these days are heavy-handed winks that linked visual iconography from the prequel to the Superior original. However, I did want to say that over the last few years, there has been a lot of discussion online about the creature effects from the movie. This is due to videos being posted by the Creature Effects team, Amalgamated Designs at the time, now called Studio ADI, that shows that a much more practical version was shot on stage. Apparently, or allegedly, at some point closer to release, Universal either greatly augmented or outright replaced the original effects with CG versions. I have yet to see a definitive article on whether it was test audience reactions or the studio's own fears that caused the late change, but this rushed timeline also accounts for why the CG work is regarded as substandard. Thankfully, I feel we are currently in a renaissance regarding the public and studio's acceptance of practical effects. Just look at Lucasfilm's stance on using it as a selling point for Force Awakens and Rogue One. However, this clearly wasn't always the case, and it is worthwhile to look at the test videos from Studio ADI to see the hours of sweat and craftsmanship that was thrown away and wonder about the thing prequel that might have been. I Uh, did
1: not know any of this backstory. Yeah, yeah, and
2: and, and Cam includes a a link to some of that footage, which we will post probably on our Facebook, and you can find using the internet, which presumably you know how to use.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you just, you have to you know, live or die by the effects that these effects that you're given. I mean, I I don't, that has to be the first thing or one of the first things that springs to mind when people think of the thing. And so that's going to be a clear point of comparison when you're talking about the original um, and the 2011 version. And So if the 2011 version scraps its own, you know, practical effects, however good they might be, and goes with a rushed substandard, cgi job I mean, that's that's not good
3: still haven't seen it guys
1: i haven't either but i'm just saying uh, uh, in the abstract uh, that's the argument i'm making
2: but so. are you going to watch this test footage that cam links to to see the practical uh, yeah, sure. version of well, the film maybe, that you well, haven't seen no I, <laughs>
1: I guess i maybe can compare and contrast if, if it's streaming somewhere <laughs> uh i'll have to check um <laughs> So as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response in a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll look at a stranger film about a much bigger pig. Bong Joon-ho's Okja. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash show and follow us on Twitter at next Picture pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, that'll do, listeners. That'll do.
0: Moon, you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own, I pray for someone I really could care care for